Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Hey guys, a big shout out to YouTube Music. It's a new app that combines everything you'd expect from a streaming service with the magic of YouTube. And uh, it just brings everything to life. Uh, I love it. I love it. With YouTube Music Premium, you'll get ad-free music that plays with the screen off or while using other apps. Get music whenever you want it, even if you're offline. Download the new YouTube Music app today and start a free 30-day trial. Then, just pay $9.99 per month. Of course, there's terms and restrictions that do apply, but I think this is the future of streaming music. It's YouTube Music, the premium version It is highly recommended. It's where we can hear all our favorite hard rock and heavy metal music, the stuff that we love here on Talking Metal. So give them a chance, YouTube Music, and go download that app today and start your free 30-day trial. Hi, guys. It's Emily. How's everyone doing? On this episode of Talking Metal, our guests are Adam Wakeman from Ozzy Osbourne's band and the legendary guitarist K.K. Downing of Judas Priest fame. But before we get into the show, I just want to say thank you so much to all of our Patreon supporters, Anthony Mackey, Metal Dan, BJ Goklowski, Brody Goklowski, Fred Rutz, James Bennett, Jay Vaninsky, hey Jay, JB Allen, John Francois Blatt, Blatt, I can't pronounce that last name, I'm so sorry if I slaughtered that, Jens Jacobson, uh, John Boveri, Michael Street, Mike Jones, David Gray, Ralph Petrie, Rick Bunch, Ron Keel. Hey, Ron. What's up? Sean Morgan. Steve Hoker. Hi, Steve. Steven and Steven Saylor. Wow, this list gets longer and longer every time. I'm so excited about this. And we're, we thank each and every one of you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids.
right, a classic Judas Priest song here on Talking Metal. That song right there, Reckless. And Emily and I are in the middle of reading this great book that K.K. Downing has released with with a guy you've met on Mark social media. Mark Edmondson, yeah. right. And he mailed sent it, you the book. He mailed me the book. And Thank you, he, Mark. And then you stole it from me. Yeah. <laughs> We're both reading it at the same time, so there's two separate bookmarks in it right now. Right, yeah. right. It, it's, it's so good so far. Such a good read. I recommend all of you read it. And I know there are a lot of headlines out there right now about it because it, it gets a headline, right? right? So there's a lot of blabbermouth headlines out there, but my advice to everyone is to read the book. Absolutely. And we have the one and only K.K. Downing on the show with us today, along with Adam Wakeman, who is just the incredible keyboard player, has always so much great stuff going on. So stay tuned for both of those interviews coming up momentarily. We just heard Reckless by Judas Priest, which in the book, there's a cool story about that kind of deep cut that they wanted that song for the Top Gun soundtrack. And Judas Priest turned down uh, the producers of the movie and KK in retrospect thinks that that was a, a mistake obviously because Top Gun went on to be this just massive movie and uh, it could have had a Judas Priest song on the on the soundtrack they wanted that song they didn't get it it ended up on Turbo um, yeah so gr- that and so many other great stories in this book without further ado let's get into my interview with KK Downing uh, always an honor. Last time we had this guy on the podcast was about a decade ago. Craziness. But he is back. It's been far too long. So glad he's back with us here on the podcast. And a big thanks to Mark Eglinton for helping hook up the interview. Thanks, Mark. Here we go. My conversation with K.K. Downing, former Judas Priest guitar player. Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and what an honor to speak to one of the founders of the music we all love, K.K. Downing. Thank you so much for talking with us again on Talking Metal, K.K. Hi, Mark. Thank you very much uh, for giving me the opportunity to uh, speak to yourself and uh, all of the fans uh, one more time. Absolutely, and I'm really enjoying your new book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights, in Judas Priest, it is a, it's a wonderful read. I'm I'm about three fourths of the way through it, and I'm really just uh, I can't put it down. Such good stuff. Uh, thank you very much, and um, like I say, uh, I must thank uh, Mark Eglinton, uh, the uh, co-writer there, that uh, helped me so much to uh, to dig into my memory banks and dig deep and. Um, and uh, recall exactly uh, how metal was actually made. <clears throat> Absolutely. And uh, where did you and Mark first meet? Um, kind of over the phone, really, first, and for a while, really. Um, I'd been approached quite a lot of times, you know, in, uh, in recent years, and I thought, no, no, you know, um, not particularly interested to get into all of that. And... And I guess as time went on, I thought, well, you know what? Um, it could be a few good reasons, really, to uh, to put some um, some things in writing, really. Um, a few things I could think about. And um, I'm very glad now that I did. And, uh, and the book's out and um, I'm proving to be really quite popular. So it's really, really good. Yeah, and I mean, there's great stuff in there. I really enjoyed hearing about your childhood and and how 
I guess I would say difficult and, and at times awkward that was. I mean, I, that was something I never knew about you. I I really enjoyed the stuff about Hendrix. Can well, Let's talk a little bit about Hendrix, because it sounds like that first time you saw Hendrix, it, it not only changed like the way you viewed music, it potentially changed the way you just viewed life in general. I mean, is that an overstatement, or do you agree with that? Yeah, it was, it was you know... Um... It was just one of those things. I think we will go through that, hopefully, at some point. You know, um, something happens to us when we're a certain age, very influential. And um, something happens, and it's kind of an unbelievable experience, really. And uh, you can't quite believe what you're hearing or seeing, you know. And that was me. And I'm thinking, wow, does this exactly, does this exist on the planet? You know, it's something that, you know, I had... No idea. Obviously, I'd, I'd heard the record before I went to the concert, but obviously to see Hendrix perform in the way that he did <clears throat> um, in those magical years, and it was a very short window, mm-hmm. in all fairness, you know, before before Jimmy become somewhat affected by the industry and uh, the business, that you know, the whole thing. You know, it's like, um, you know, often... Um, you know, things happen. And I think some of that happened with Priest, really, because when we were young and we were fighting in the trenches, trying to get there, didn't have any money, there was no particular success. You know, there was kind of the fun, genuine times, but we went out there and, you know, killed the shows just naturally as free spirits. But um, later on, things creep in, you know, uh, and I think that's what happened with uh, with Jimmy, because obviously it's quite well documented now that he did have some problems with management and, you know, and, uh, and other things that were affecting uh, his performance later on, uh, later on, you know. And and you, you really stayed a fan of his right up until the end, and there's even this story in the book where you kind of, I guess, uh, snuck... I guess back to where he was in a in a backstage area, and you kind of you got to meet him. I think it was only like three yeah. weeks before he passed on. Yeah, that was at the Isle of Wight Festival in right. uh, 1970. I, you know, we were we were kind of me and my buddies. We were kind of past masters at getting into gigs, you know, because we you know without paying because we didn't have any money, and the Isle of Wight was no exception, but. Managed to get into the um, <clears throat> into the into the press pitch right up the front, but before that, managed to get to uh, find out which uh, they had like caravans that they were using for dressing rooms, and uh, and we could kind of hear these voices. And I said, "That's Jimmy's voice, and that's Noel," you know. And we we could we knew that they were in that caravan, you know. So we kind of those old English caravans, you could kind of lift the windows up and there were some curtains. And, and so that's what we did, you know, and pull the curtains apart. <laughs> and the guys right. who just sat there like, around a little square table, <laughs> you know, with um, with a girl or two. And, um, you know, and um, I said, hey, Jimmy, you know, can, can we get your autograph? Uh, and I think I told the story, you know, we had... Had a Coke bottle that he was drinking a Coke out of, and, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, and a drumstick off Mitch, and it was uh, quite magical, you know. But after a while, you know, the window had to go down because those guys had a gig to do, right? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And and so much great history about the early 
stages of the bands and the different lineups that came in and out of the band. And I wanted to touch upon a song, Victim of Changes, which is still, for us Priest fans, still just one of our favorites. It's interesting you go into detail about this song, that it really came from two separate songs, Whiskey Woman, which had been an early pre-Halford pre-song, and then one of Halford's songs, I believe, right? Red Light Lady. So you sort of combined, it was a combination of these two songs that made Victim of Changes? I think so. I think um, pretty much a lot of the lyrics stayed the same. You know, obviously it's the opening line of the song, Whiskey Woman, Don't You Know You're Driving Me Insane. I think it is something like that, you know. But, um, um, but uh, yeah, we were playing that, you know, um, in the very, very early days. And I think when uh, Rob came into the band, we made a couple of changes. And when uh, Glenn eventually came into the band and... Uh, I think we made uh, another change, and uh, it went on to the second record, Sad Wings. Absolutely. Such a great record. And another thing that you hit upon numerous times in the book is the the image of Judas Priest, the leather image that, that really came about, I guess, in the, you know, mid to late 70s, was, uh-huh. you know, something that the... the a lot of the documentaries and articles that we read about heavy metal music really always pinpoints this to to Rob and that this was his image. But you, you know, you really are the one that kind of pushed this image upon the band and got them interested in having a united image and and the the leather look. Um, where did you first think up? like the leather the leather would go with what we're doing was there somebody you saw was there was there somebody that influenced that leather look that kind of made that pop into your mind no i think what it was when i was growing up as a young kid my two sisters used to drive me mad listening to the radio with all the pop bands and stuff like that and all of these bands obviously the beatles and uh, a lot of the mersey sound you know there was lots of bands all wore the same clothes and had the same haircut and that seemed to be like the thing to do, you know, as a pop band. So <clears throat> I think not just me, but like I think about every other band thought that is not what we're going to do because we are a blues band or a, a progressive blues band or, a, you know, later a, a rock band. And so it was kind of commonplace to have, you know, um, various different, you know, uh, outfits, you know, um, obviously some denim in there, flared pants, you know, it was, it was, a, it was the 60s, you know, going on the late 60s, and obviously some colourful stuff, shirts and that, and so it was the thing to steer away from was the uniform, but something didn't quite fit because, you know, we, we seemed to be a bit eclectic with the way that we looked, you know, the, 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 we had a great band named Judas Priest. We had a great kind of dark, kind of moody, a lot of moody material and, and stuff like that. And um, and these these colours, these bright kind of uh, and satins and stuff didn't really cut it, you know. But So I was wearing stuff like over-the-knee leather boots and stuff like that and, and, and various things. Um, but then it suddenly dawned on me that you know, all, I've got, we've got all of this wrong. What we really do need is right. a uniform to, you know, so that we will be more, we'll have a more, a more powerful, for want of a better phrase, I think we'll be more, you know, 
a more forceful kind of unit if we have some kind of something that um, brings everything together. So, you know, um, so 76, 77 Ostar. And, of course, the obvious thing was black's got to be the colour for our music, surely. You know, it can't be pink or green or something like that, you right, know, or right. yellow or cream. It's got to be black, you know. I thought, well, if you wear all black, people might not be able to see you, so get some shiny bits on there, um, and you're good to go. So this started to evolve in me as a person. Obviously, there's some photographs in the book. There's some videos on YouTube. Um, and so I had a chat with Rob, see if he fancy coming to London, you know, to go to have some leather clothes made, and he was totally up for it, as he would be. And... Um, and then for a while, myself and Rob were wearing some uh, stuff like that. And then the rest before, next to no time, we were all kind of doing that. And yeah. when, by the time British Steel was born, you know, we had everything came together. You know, the band name, so a great uh, a great album with songs. You know, uh, we had the image, great album cover. You know, we didn't know how great he was at the time, the razor blade. We thought it was a bit, maybe a bit risky. But, um, yeah, because the story goes, originally that razor blade did cut into the fingers and there was blood, but oh, yeah. we were talked out of, we were talked about, <laughs> we were talked, talked into erasing that, you know, and changing it a little bit. So um, that's kind of what happened. So, but after that, kind of um, everything was consolidated and I was—I couldn't have been more happy. And of course, it—it it came to be true when we were two with Kiss or Led Zeppelin, Alice Cooper, Foghat, whoever it was. You know, we really did seem to be a powerhouse. You know, when we hit that stage, you know, looked good, felt good, and that—that—that that, that kind of uniform, more uniform look in a way, um, made us feel pretty uh, unified and uh, right. strong. I totally understand that. And another thing you, you touch upon in the book is is this kind of strange period in, in hard rock and heavy metal, which was the late 70s, like 1978, 1979, that, you know, at that point, Sabbath was kind of on their last legs. Even Zeppelin was changing their sound and on their last legs, literally, too. You guys were one of the few bands kind of still out there in the mainstream flying the the hard rock heavy metal flag but how aware were you of what was going on in the underground you know there was this movement that later became known as the the new wave of british heavy metal were you guys kind of tuned into that uh and and seeing that there was this this group of 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 young kids who were still flying the the heavy metal flag yeah no it was fairly unknown to us because we were pretty busy we were in right. other countries recording albums and touring and stuff like that um you know it was a pretty tough period in the 70s as you say there you know because of all the punk and the new wave thing that was that was uh that was um you know we, we, uh, a, lot, a lot of people had to ride that storm out less and less rock bands were, were touring UK, in one year, I think there was just us, UFO, and and that was it, you know, yeah. um, the rest of it was all this new wave and punk movement, so it was kind of, a lot of people were kind of keeping their heads down a bit for a while, I think, but 
obviously we kept on going with other bands as well. You know, the Scorpions were out there somewhere. So I suppose these the youngsters, I mean, still remembered seeing us before all of this happened in the early 70s. Uh, and of course, you know, they were kind of always there, probably honing their skills and that. And unfortunately, by the time British Steel came out, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, and just in the late seventies, some of these bands started to emerge, like um, uh, Venom, Saxon, I think. Uh, you know, Def Leppard. Uh, in fact, Def Leppard, um, they did their first album. I think they actually came to the recording studio. We were actually recording British Steel, and they'd appointed Tom Allen, our producer, to. Uh, to record their first record right. so they came down to the studio and and asked if they could watch us record for a while which they did one evening you know uh, but they were very young and um so yeah it all started to grow and i think on the back of bands like priest uh like say ufo scorpions and uh um etc i think that uh yeah it's it's a blessing that those guys came along you know and um and, you know, we were able to take pretty much all of those guys on tour with us yeah. uh, as supporting one way, obviously made in Saxon, uh, Jeff Leppard. So so that was good. And obviously all of those guys went on to be obviously total bona fide uh, headliners, arena yeah. bands in their own right. And you mentioned you mentioned Iron Maiden, and we've always heard that in in the early '80s there was some tension between Judas Priest and and Iron Maiden. And I, you know, for the first time, I really think you go into more detail about about that than I've I've read. And it's interesting because you know Maiden, when they came out, especially in their early days, they they had the leather. They they looked very much like Judas Priest. Paul Diano, even with the belts and and the, I mean, it was an exact Judas Priest outfit. Um, but you mentioned that the tension really, it seemed to come more from there. And you, at one point, you talk about them watching you guys and studying you guys at a sound check, and and there there was. Um, you know, almost, should I say, like a bad attitude from them towards you? Do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it was uh, it was somewhat unsettling at the time, but uh, I think it was about 1985, 1986, I actually met Paul Diano. I mean, he came along and, uh, and did apologize. Right. He said, he basically said, Sorry, KK, we were just a bit, you know, over-enthusiastic at the time. Well, fine, that's all you need, isn't it, really? You know, um, understood. I'm, I mean, um, <clears throat> it was it was difficult for us because we, we, we it was a long, hard struggle for priests. We just had to work hard and we were very humble and very appreciative of, of, of anything that we could get, really, from the industry, you know. And uh, when we first went to America to tour with big, big bands, uh, you know, everyone said, don't expect anything because, you know, if you get anything, it's a bonus, you know, whether it's light, sound or, you know, stuff in the dressing room or whatever. And we accepted that, you know, we accepted that. Um, and we thought we'll have our day. We'll just do our, go about our work. And, 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 of course, that too, when Maiden supported us, they kind of did, I think they would have to admit that they... They did play up and cause some upsets, really, wanting bigger stages, more stage room. Right. And often often we didn't have enough ourselves, you know, as a headliner, but 
Um, but I don't know what it was all about, but I suppose, you know, uh, it was just a little bit of uh, early days delinquency. But yeah. like I say, a lot of water's gone under the bridge now, and obviously um, met quite a few of the guys since, you know. Um, really get on great with Nico. He's uh, known Nico a long time. He's a great guy. But I'm I'm really glad now that, I'm, that as you say, initially I would look at photographs in magazines. I think he's us. Right. <laughs> looks like looks like you know is it looks like us. Yeah. Um, but um, but the main thing is the guys that went out there did what they did and they've become completely bona fide. And I'm immensely proud to say that they were that they're a, a, a British export and um and obviously it would be hard to imagine a metal world world without iron maiden and uh, i sincerely wish them all of the best on on their endeavors you know now and in the future and you know earlier this year i sat down and interviewed uh, scott travis and he told me during that interview that one of his favorite drummers of of the Judas Priest uh, legacy was Les Banks, and you, you talk a lot about Les in the book. It's great to to read these stories again, guys. The book is Heavy Duty Days and Nights in Judas Priest by K.K. Downing and Mark Eglinton. Great, great read. But in the book, you briefly mentioned that you got together rather recently with with Les. And was this just was this the first time you had seen him since back in the day, or had you been in contact yeah. through the? Yeah, wow, why did yeah, you reach out to him? Was it for the book to research, no, just I, to hang? I, just um, a, a friend of, of mine was uh, somewhere at a pub or club, and Les was there, and they were having a chat and a few beers, and they decided to give me a call, and uh, which was good. And then Les came up to see me, and he said, "Hey, do you fancy?" For the hell of it, re-recording Beyond the Realms, and you know, and uh, so I'm kind of doing this thing, and people ask me to do things, and I just kind of do it, you know. I need to stop really and think about what I'm going to do seriously, but it's it's kind of fun really. But it was great to see Les again, you know, because um, Les was a fantastic drummer. We know that, you know, because um, you know, Andy is a top drummer. You know, he's played with so many great people. Obviously, done a lot of sessions in the London area, and, uh, and still plays great today. So, um, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Les brought a lot, um, a lot to, uh, to Judas Priest. Absolutely. And when you look back on that Turbo record, you know, uh, I, I remember speaking to Glenn Tipton maybe four or five years ago, and there has been a, a portion of the fan base that, you know, they didn't like that you guys went in this a little bit more commercial style with that record. But Glenn had you know, told me that he, he really likes that record after all this time has passed and, and still looks fondly on it. How do you look back on the Turbo album by Judas Priest? Yeah, all I can say is the fact that, you know, guys, uh, you know, everybody listening out there, Life is a relative, can be a relatively long time, you know. Um, we were doing what we do for decades, and so there, there was lots of changes, lots of changes in the economy, and, you know, in recessions, happiness, you know, the, the, the industry. <clears throat> you know, lots of things happen, depending where you are at the time, you can feel a certain way in your own personal life, you know, and all this has an effect, really, on what you do and how you do it. Um, but these records, you know, they represent a very, very special period. You know, uh, they all represent a period in our lives. And it's a bit like, 
you know, it's a bit like your mom giving birth to your brothers and sisters. You know, right. she probably remembers, you know, it's a special, you know, period. And uh, and it's hard to denounce any of your children. You know, they are products of what you produced at the time, you know, and you did the best you could. Um, and it was what it was. Turbo came out in the mid-'80s, and everybody's got to agree it was great then. There was a massive infusion, you know, in the 80s of, like, great bands were coming to the surface, left, right, and center, great concerts. There was a feel-good factor, and everything was just, you know, just full steam ahead, you know, in particular with uh, rock and metal, the, the way that... And I think there was a great interest in, you know, where it had come from, where it was, and where it was going. Everybody was excited to know what, what what's going to happen next, you know. There's going to be another big festival, another super group, you know, appear. And um, and it seemed to be that way, that superstars were being born almost every week. Yeah. Yeah. And to to jump ahead just a little bit to the, the 1990s and uh, just a few more questions because I know we're almost out of time here, but how, how close did... Did you? How closely did you pay attention to Rob's uh, musical output in the 1990s when he wasn't in Judas Priest? You know, fight, and then he did the two project with John Five. His his Halford, his at least the first Halford record he did before he was back in Priest. How closely were you and Ian and Glenn paying attention to his releases? Not much, really. To be yeah. fair, um, not much. Um, you know, Rob actually left the band for 14 years. Wow. It was a long time, you know, uh, obviously, but we got, we got the incredible Ripper Owens in there, you know, and uh, he helped us sustain and do what we did. Obviously, <clears throat> fans wouldn't perceive Ripper's voice as great as it is to be the voice of Judas Priest, so it's, it's difficult to get a, a, a wide spectrum of, of acceptance. But it's undeniable how great he is. Not many vocalists in the world. I mean, I, you know, you could count them on one hand. You know, it's just five. We're lucky, really. Yeah. I mean, I think with Rob, you know, Ripper, Ralph Shapers, and you know, and the, the, the you know, I'm probably missing some some guys out who've got great voices. There are some good singers out there, but. You know, uh, at the top of the tree there, you know, um, it's, uh, the, you know, they're very hard to find and hard to come by, you know. Um, yeah. And so we're very lucky, really, to have had these great singers perform, you know, in Priest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in one point in the book, you mentioned how when you you had Rob in the band, you guys were actually in the early days before before the album, you know, the first album came out. You were actually afraid somebody might steal him out of the band, which is is uh, interesting to think about. Yeah, that certainly could have happened because things were evolving so fast. Really, you know, things were starting to take off. You know, in the uh, in the seventies. Right on. Um, you know that 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 could well have happened, really. Well, thank thank goodness it didn't. And uh, I know I got to let you go, KK. But real real quick, uh, do you ever plan to release any new music on your own or, or with another group? Are there, is there plans yeah. to release music? I think about it, you know. But I'm kind of certainly there's a certain reluctance of me to want to kind of start over, you know, when I've kind of been party to uh, 
Judas Priest ever since I was a teenager. You know, it's it's a hard pill to swallow, really, to think about right. it. But, but the winter's setting in now. Um, well, you know, uh, we're in autumn, but this is England, so it's going to yeah. get pretty cold, and the clocks go back fairly soon, so it's going to be early. So, you know, I'm going to shut myself away this winter, I think, in the music room and see what, see what comes out at the other end of spring, I guess. All right, all right. It's always great talking with you, KK. And again, the book is just fantastic. We encourage all the Talking Metal listeners to check it out. Heavy Duty, Days and Nights, and Judas Priest. We will have it linked through our show notes on TalkingMetal.com, where you can buy it on Amazon. And it's it's a great read. So thank you for sharing your life with us in this book, KK. And, and thank you, Mark, and uh, to all the fans and all the listeners out there. And, um, you know, thanks a lot for all the support over the... I won't say years, but decades. And uh, hope to see you again, you know, somewhere in the world soon. You take care of yourself, KK. We are so thankful for the music you've given us through the years. And, uh, yeah, it's just always an honor. Thank you, Mark. And uh, obviously keep up the good work that you do. Well, thank you. You take care now. Good night. Take care. Bye.
Priest with Ripper on vocals. Tim Ripper Owens on vocals on that one. One on one from that 90s era. Actually, 2001. We got Adam Wakeman coming up in just a second. Um, we should go to Germany to see Ozzy. We've we're, been talking about, about this. So we talked about going for the final Black Sabbath show in, was it in Birmingham? I don't know where it was. The yeah, final yep. Black Sabbath. And, right. and that, that never happened, never happened, of course. No. So then we thought, all right, let's go for some of the final dates, Ozzy dates. Well, not dates, but from the No More Tours tour. Um, and we've never been to Deutschland. Yeah. Du bist ausgezeichnet. <laughs> sure, I don't know what you just said, but yeah, I, it's, it's interesting because Ozzy's playing in Hamburg on one night and then the very next night Ghost is playing. So it could be a uh, you know two for one trip over there. I mentioned it to my mom, by the way, to see if she could watch the kids. And so, so we're still discussing that. We need to look into uh, a few things, but it would be great to see Adam Wakeman. Adam, he's the best. On stage with what Ozzy. A nice guy. One, one more time and... Again, it's always a pleasure to talk with Adam, and he's got so much great stuff going on. We're going to get into a song which is a little different for us on Talking Metal, but I love this song. It's it's mellow, and the lyrics they really brought a and the the singing really brought a tear to my eye. This is Red Sox. Give it a chance, guys. I love it. I love it. Piano, vocal, not much else. Great stuff. And it's by Wilson and Wakeman. It's here on Talking Metal followed by my interview with Adam Wakeman, of course, the son of Rick Wakeman. And, uh, you know, we, we do mention Rick a little bit in the in the interview. And, and, you know, Rick played keyboards or piano, I should say, Emily, on that beautiful song that you and I both love, Life on Mars by David Bowie. Right. And Adam mentions that song uh, during the interview. Talk so. about good genes. Yeah. And now I think his daughter is following in his footsteps, too, from what I understand on his Twitter. Oh, so nice. So third generation, maybe player awesome this is red socks by wilson and wakeman followed by my interview with adam wakeman from the ozzy osbourne band i don't recall when i was only five years old i had a pair of red socks that i valued and i remember when we traveled as a family to the coast for sunday at west wittering i watched my father take the football socks i cherished Tying them to a kite, they hovered up above me But when they escaped to the waves out in the ocean By brothers and by father, I was taunted So we could spend the day to be remembered 
Mark Striegel of Talking Metal, and I'd like to welcome back on the podcast from the Ozzy Osbourne Band and many other bands and projects, Adam Wakeman. How are you, Adam? I'm very well, thank you, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, and thank you, man, because my wife and I were down at the PNC Art Center in New Jersey on a uh, rather rainy night. The place was packed, and you guys, Ozzy, Blasco, Zach, and Tommy, and, and yourself, you just delivered such a great emotional night for me who's been an Aussie fan literally you know since I was 11 years old it, it really it really was a, an emotional evening and and thank you for that performance oh that's my my pleasure on on behalf of uh, everybody else I'm sure uh, I'm sure they say the same thing it's a I mean it's a great tour this so far it's been um you know Aussie's on great form the shows have been really well received and yeah, it's just kind of, you know, and no, nobody seems disappointed, which is a good thing. Yeah, no, it's great. And and I love seeing you on stage last time uh, with Sabbath, you were kind of off to the side there. It's so great to see you out there, right. You know, not, not front and center, but right, right on stage, right next to the other guys. So that's awesome. <laughs> I'm slow. I'm slowly moving further on. I'm slowly moving <laughs> further into the middle. One day, uh, one day Aussie would be up on my riser. Um, yeah, it's funny. Sabbath. I mean, Sabbath's always, always been the same for the, all the, all the shows I've ever done with them. I've always been off to the side. That's just the kind of nature of the, of the gig. But, um, but yeah, Aussie's always been kind of, you know, quite, uh, you know, the keyboards have been a fairly, a much sort of bigger part of the band than, than with Sabbath, for example. So it right. kind of makes, you know, it wouldn't make any sense to be, you know, off the stage. Yeah, and you're doing some guitar playing too. You played guitar on, was it War Pigs? Was there another song War you played? Pigs, yeah, Fairies Wear Boots right. and Paranoid. The way that kind of sort of worked was was really when, when Gus um, G uh, came into the band where everything kind of changed a little bit where we ended up kind of, we rehearsed uh, about 50 or 60 songs um, over a month or so and tried loads of other songs that he hadn't done for a long time. And on the Sabbath songs, it just made more sense to add a rhythm guitar when there weren't keyboard parts there originally. Um, and then and it just sort of stuck, really. Obviously, then went and did the two long Sabbath tours, the 13 and then the end. And Tony was keen for me to play more rhythm guitar rather than keyboards for the same right. reason. Um, and, you know, I'm, I, I'd prefer to do whatever makes it sound better. It's, you know, I'm not, I'm not sort of um, precious about, you know, being a keyboard player and putting parts in that aren't there. It's, it's more about making sure there's an authentic sound coming out the front for people that want to hear Sabbath songs played, you know, played properly. Um, so it just kind of worked that I ended up playing more guitar. And then obviously when we're back with Ozzy, it's kind of, um, it makes sense to do the do the same thing and just put the rhythm guitar down for, you know, work, works great in war piece because Zach goes off and, and does yeah. his uh, long solo and um, and it's good to have a guitar underneath rather than uh, than keyboards. I think. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is such a fun night, and everyone needs to get out and see this this final Aussie tour. I'm actually, my wife and I were just talking. We may come over to Germany to see you guys play over there. We're, oh, we're, fantastic. <laughs> we're, we're looking at it. It's Aussie one night, and then Ghost plays the next night, so it would be a, a, a win-win for us. So we're, we're considering oh, that great. in February. Yeah. yeah, I've just start, I've just started seeing all the dates and stuff coming up. Where um, yeah, we've got sort of you know the UK tour and the European stuff. Quite a few German dates, and now Australia and New Zealand. I see. I mean, I find out it, as bizarre as it seems. Some people don't believe me, but I tend to find out more on Twitter than I do um, from anybody else because you know the dates and things move around so much and they get organized and you know i basically get get the kind of heads up that we're going to be busy and then that's right. all i need to know really and then I'll, I'll add the dates to my diary when I, when i see them on twitter right on right on coming into the interview we heard a song uh that's a, a little different than what we usually play on on the talking metal podcast here but i think it's just such a beautiful song it's Red Sox, and it's off the Wilson Wakeman album that came out earlier this year, The Sun Will Dance in Its Twilight Hour. I, I love that song, man. I, I the, the lyrics, I, I don't know. I'd like every time I listen to it, I'm, I'm, I'm like seeing and hearing different things. Uh, heavy stuff. I really am enjoying the record, and, and I got to say, that's probably my favorite song off the record. Any stories behind composing that beautiful short yeah, song? I mean, da- uh, Damien Wilson, that's the second album that uh, Damien and I have, uh, have written together. We uh, He's responsible for 90% of the lyrics and, and melody stuff on that. There's one song that I wrote uh, and sang on, which is uh, Battlefield. Right. Uh, and all the rest Damien wrote. Now, Damien is a, I think is a fantastic storyteller, lyricist. He's, there's a, a, you know, a lot of thought goes into what he writes. Um, and right up until the moment he's recording, he's changing bits and, and pieces. He's very kind of very conscious about making sure the story's right. But they mainly tend to deal with personal experience. And that song is is literally as it sounds. It's like, you know, his his dad and his brother thought it'd be funny and tied his pair of football socks to a um, a kite and they got swept off, you know, right. over over the sea. And it and it kind of did it did affect him. You know, obviously as a child, it was like something that he valued above anything else and then disappeared and then you know it, it then draws round to um the passing of his father and the and the kind of um that effect, that feeling of loss that he felt back there by the sea at that time so it's quite it's a really um you know it's kind of comedy in one in one sense but also kind of deals with that kind of the tragedy and the feeling of loss that is that everybody feels at some point whether it's a five-year-old losing his toy or socks or whatever or you know or losing a parent or something like that right right uh, later in life absolutely and it's a great record again the sun will dance in its twilight hour by wilson and wakeman and you guys are doing some some dates uh like pretty much a full UK tour coming up in January, right? Yeah, we're doing, I think it's 16 or 15 or 16 shows in January just before we start back up with Aussie again. I mean, it's kind of, it wasn't fully intentional to be quite so long, but we did uh, we did a similar thing um, a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, and uh, a lot of the venues wanted us to come back. So it kind of worked out that, that it fitted in between when Aussie finishes. Um, I mean, when Aussie finishes, I go on another another short tour with a band, uh, Travis, in the UK. Okay. Um, so that leads me up to Christmas, and then it's straight into the Wilson Wakeman tour in January. I think I'm January the 5th, and I think finish that and go straight to 
um, Dublin to start the uh, the Aussie run. So it's kind of it's, yeah, it's going to be a pretty busy busy time. Right on. And for that tour, the UK tour for Wilson Wakeman, what what can fans expect in the set list? I'm guessing we're going to get some Headspace stuff, but also you know Wilson Wakeman stuff. Is there other? I mean, you have such a diverse uh, hist- musical history. What else would we expect to hear at those shows? Well, we try and we try and kind of mix it up as much as we can. I mean, we tended to on the last tour, for example, we pulled a, a song in that was that my dad played a part of. We try and pull a connection with a song rather than just pick a song that we like to play. Um, so yeah, we did Life on Mars, which obviously was David wow. Bowie's song yeah. that my dad played piano on on the original. So we try and do a, an acoustic version of that. Um, it's a it's a it's a pretty fully acoustic show. So it's, there's always a real piano um, and a couple of acoustic guitars between us, and then we both kind of you know share the singing. But Damien takes the the main bulk of that. Um, so song wise, we were actually talking about that the other day just to see um, to see what we can uh, what we can throw in there. But I mean the last. What something that he wasn't planning on doing that he that w- was requested and it ended up sticking was bring him home from Les Miserables the um, the musical because Damien was the the lead in Les Mis in London for oh, wow. um, for a number of years so it, even though musical theatre is not necessarily uh, what you would associate with um, the kind of metal singer that that is Damien Wilson that is a kind of it's a real showpiece, and you know, you, it, there's you know, there's tears in the house when he sings that. It's pretty emotional. Wow. So oh. I don't know whether we'll put that one back in. It, it, it kind of depends really on how how we start. We'll have a rough set list, and I'm pr- pretty sure after three shows it will be completely different. Very cool. And you guys, you know, you have such a great musical vibe, but you also have such a great conversational vibe, which I'm experiencing now on on the podcast that you guys have have started. And can you talk a little bit about how how this all came about? I mean, it sounds like two friends just sitting down chatting, but it's it's you know for me it's very interesting. I, I love hearing about the uh, you know FNS syndrome and yeah. hugging the babysitter and stuff like that, <laughs> which we can go into. But yeah, yeah, it's I mean the thing with uh, the thing with the two of us is we've known each other such a long time. Um, but we don't we're not in each other's pockets it's not like we're touring kind of you know 10 months of the year so when we see each other it is like catching up you know two guys going on holiday and that's kind of what it's like we drive everywhere to the shows as well i think on the on the last tour we did we covered about 7000 miles and i drove it all and we talked the entire time and then we get there and we do the show and then we talk in between the songs and we tell stories and chat about whatever's you know, whatever's current, whatever's going on and, and, and what we think about it. And that always leads on to a story from one of us about a personal experience because we've both been on the road for such a long time. Um, I think it's like 20, well, I'm 44 now, so it's 26 years I've been sort of wow. doing doing this. It's kind of, there's always a collection, you know, if we talk about bus drivers, there's, a, there's at least three or four, you know, hilarious bus driver stories or, you know, plane scenarios or hotel disasters or you know there's always something that we can kind of talk about so it's and it's you know we can be very honest and with the podcast as well when we sat down I said there's you know is is there anything you're uncomfortable talking about and he said no and I said well that's fine with me let's just we see where it goes and that was kind of how how they um how they started yeah it's a fun listen and i when you started talking about let's the fns syndrome uh i started thinking about myself because i i, I by the way that's forward neck syndrome do you want to explain what that actually is 
Yeah, it's the it's when people when you're at a festival and uh, and um, you're talking to them and they are constantly looking over your shoulder to see if there's somebody more important to talk to, and it happens at every festival. It happens at any backstage area, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not it's not well tolerated in the Wilson Wake, Wakeman camp, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and thanks for pointing it out because I feel like I do that. You know, I, I go <laughs> I go backstage and I'm talking to somebody, and then I'm like, oh my god, there goes you know there goes Ozzy, you know, and I'm yeah. I, I, my attention <laughs> drifts from the guy I'm I should be talking to to the more famous person. So okay, so no, yeah. no, that's the, you, I'll excuse you on that one, Mark, because yeah. that's that's you're looking then at the boss and that. That's, that's kind of fine. It's right. when you're looking over over somebody's shoulder in the hope to see somebody uh, more important to talk to. Right on, right on. So and, I'll give you I'll give you a pass on that one. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, wanted to just talk about all the different people you've worked with. Well, not all of them, but touch upon some of them. Um, Slash, what what did you do with Slash? Did you tour or record with him? What was your uh, your working relationship with Slash? My, my very first uh, show was to, was when he did the Slash and Friends stuff. It was quite oh, a few right. years ago now, and he did a he did a show in Norway, um, and needed somebody to go and, and and play keys. So that was um, that was the first show I did, and then he came and worked with us and did the Aussie and Friends shows. So we we did about. 10 or 12 Aussie and Friends shows uh, through the summer. I can't remember what year that was now. Probably probably just before the Sabbath stuff started in 2013, so 2011, something like that. Um, And he's great. I mean, what, you know, as as a kid growing up, I had kind of sort of three or four favorite guitar players, which would have been obviously Tony Iommi slash Eddie Van Halen and Steve Ray Vaughan. They were the four my go-to guitar players that I would, you know, listen to and sort of study. And, uh, yeah, and to work with him was fantastic. And he was, you know, he was... Oh, in fact, actually, do you know, he came and did a show with us long before that as well. He came and guested on guitar with Ozzy in Wales. We did a show oh, yeah. for the the Royal Variety performance, which is the most unusual thing Um you would expect Aussie to be on, but it was like, um, it's, it's a Royal variety kind of show where the queen and stuff are there and, and, um, in a theater and this, this one was in Wales and slash came over to guest on that. Um, and we were there all week. So I got to spend a, a week with him and it was great. It was just like spending a week with your idol and not being disappointed. It was great. Very cool. I tell you what, we're going to get into some music right now and then we're going to come back and talk some more with Adam Wakeman. This is Follow Me Under by Snake Charmer here on Talking Metal. Oh, no. 
little snake charmer here on Talking Metal who put out a great second record last year. Adam, I see they're going to be doing some dates, but I, I'm assuming you're you're not going to be playing live with them this time around because you're just so busy with all this other stuff. Well, yeah, unless they can somehow come up with uh, some time-traveling machine, I don't see how I can come forward right. to get back to England to do it. I love doing those shows with Snake Charmer because I play real Hammond and it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a real just rocking kind of you know, 70s rock style band it's great fun um but can you, Ozzy's can you talk cool. about the the connection with white snake obviously the snake charmer name has a, a connection with white snake can you just talk a little bit about the band and, and what it's all sure. about yeah when it first when it first started i wasn't involved and they were called monsters of british rock or something it was neil murray Mickey Moody, Harry James uh, from Thunder, and um, Laurie Wisefield from Wishbone Ash, and it was, it wasn't really intended to be a kind of White Snake type covers band, but they were, they played a few White Snake songs, and it was mainly you know then playing songs from the other guys' bands as well. So it was, it was kind of like a covers band, but with members of those bands in it, and then. Uh, shortly before I joined, they kind of changed the whole thing and started thinking of it as more of a as a new band rather than playing a lot of old songs. Um, and then when I joined, we wrote the album, and uh, it was kind of you know it was a, it was well received on Frontiers Records, and um, we did quite a few shows and stuff. And then Mickey left, and we got a great new guitar player Simon McBride who's fantastic I don't know if you've heard of Simon um, no I don't, I don't plays, know Simon he plays with Don Airy as well actually oh, he's, okay. uh, he's a young Irish guy superb guitar player like a, a kind of um, an even better Joe Bonamassa if I can uh, if right. I can uh, <laughs> if I wow. can put him in that in that kind of category um, so it became it started to become less white snake and more kind of just a bit more of his own entity, really, but with the second record as well. Um, and then with Mickey not being there either, it's got even less of a kind of White Snake connection. But I think right, it's okay. definitely a, you know, the, it's got that vibe of the 70s White Snake. That's definitely the kind of the uh, association. But unfortunately, the problem that, that arises um, constantly, same with Headspace, is that everybody's got so many other things going on. It's it's is finding the time to actually commit to to doing runs of um of shows right on right on and you mentioned headspace i want to get into a little music by headspace right now this is fall of america by headspace Legions. 
little headspace here on Talking Metal. We are talking with Adam Wakeman. I mean, that song right there, depending, I guess, on your your political views, <laughs> almost has mm-hmm. more relevance today than than anything. Fall of America. You know, it's the funny, the funniest thing. Damien and his lyrics. He's he's often way ahead of the curve. We wrote so one of the first Headspace songs we wrote was a song called uh, Body Soup, which was on an EP we did. It's only a, a really small number release EP, and um, it was kind of predicting the the financial meltdown, and um, and that was that was written in two thousand and oh, crikey, uh, five or something. Wow. And he was uh, it sort of that's quite poignant. And the same with Fall of America, that was two thousand and eleven, I think, or twelve, two thousand twelve. Yeah. I had um, down yeah. two thousand twelve. Yeah, that's so. Uh, yeah, bizarrely, you know, um, slightly. Um, Slightly predictive, uh, um, yeah. Depending on which way you stand, but one of the one of the things with Damien and his lyrics is that he's not um, he's not judgmental with his songwriting. He is kind of um, just a, a he's kind of conveying a, um, a multitude of opinions and but not his own, if you like. It's like right observations on. on society. That's definitely something that's that's evident in both Headspace albums. Um, but yeah, that song does seem to be, you know, even more poignant these days. In fact, we've had a couple of inquiries about um, use of that on some films. Really? Wow. Recently, which, um, uh, yeah, so you might end up hearing that on a film or film or two coming up. Very cool. Uh, do you do you envision that you two, you and 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 Damien, will get back to making? loud heavy music like that again at some point i mean again the new record is so beautiful but it's definitely a, a softer feel um do you do you envision a time where where headspace will return in all its loud volume definitely we t- I, I spoke to pete rinaldi um from headspace the guitar player yesterday um about trying to get some days together so we can book book some time in the studio and get writing um, cool. And um, unfortunately, he had his um, he had his guitar stolen, his um, eight string um, guitar, which was what he wrote and used on the last Headspace album. Um, so we're currently all on Twitter trying to find that um, before it gets uh, oh, you know sold sold somewhere around the world. Right. Um, but he's uh, yeah, so he's uh, he's got to wait another he's got to wait two months for another one to be to be made. But wow. he's um, uh, but yes, we are booking dates in to start writing for the for the next Headspace album. So hopefully, I mean, you know, how long's a piece of string? But hopefully, it won't be too long. Right. Cool. Cool. Well, we look forward to that. And fifteen years now with with Ozzy, is that right? I know it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? It sort of goes it goes so quickly. I, I mean, I look I look back. I keep a a record of all the all the dates I've done. Um, with every band on my website, just mainly so I can go back and see where I was at a certain time or if we played in the city before it's quite a good reference if you you know if you go into a town you and you think I'm sure I played it before and having a reference of where you've you know where you've been is right. is um is quite useful um and yeah just looking back going all the way back to sort of 2004 and when we first did a couple of tv things and yeah time uh, time has flown wow Wow, and you got Zach back in the band now, and and I imagine that's changed the vibe quite a bit, and and you know yeah, as... when, whenever any whenever any any kind of personnel changes, you know, it's kind of the same when when Mike Borden left and um, Tommy came in. It's kind of there's always going to be a change. There's always going to be a slightly different dynamic, but that's you know that's to be expected, and and 
also kind of encouraged, really. I think everybody knows that, you know, Ozzy's definitely not one of those kind of revolving door type gigs. You know, he values the people in the band. And at the same time, you know, he um, we're all fully aware that, you know, he can have whoever he likes in the band. You know, it's a. he could call upon anybody it's you know it's it's Ozzy Osbourne so we're we're all you know grateful to be here and I think that's the that's the best piece of advice in to any musician that you know I give when I do when I talk to young musicians is that you know you're not um you're not guaranteed a living in in any band or any um any environment just like any job you know it's like you're hire and fireable it's like you can be you can be replaced and never get um complacent about your position and you know i've had a fantastic fantastic run here with aussie and i'll be i'll be here you know i prioritize aussie over everything so right. i'm i'm happy to be here and and keep playing as long as he wants me but you know at the same same time if you know if he suddenly said i want your dad to come and play instead of you right. you know i'd be i'd be i'd be graciously uh, graciously passing on that mantle but uh yeah you know it's been uh, yeah it's been a, it's been great and you know we've got a lot we've got a lot more shows ahead of us absolutely and you know you, you mentioned your dad who of course has a history with with ozzy and, and sabbath and played on sabbath bloody sabbath the song i think zabra cadabra right he was playing some That's keys right, on yeah. It. yeah and does i know in ozzy's book he he shares some colorful stories about or at least one colorful story about your dad um does does ozzy ever kind of pull you aside and and share stories about your dad with you yeah. from from the 70s yeah. <laughs> quite regularly and, and my dad does the same thing it's quite it's um it's like a different it's, it's, it's almost like hearing about different people back then because it was such a long time ago. My dad was a very heavy drinker and uh, the, it was a time where, you know, in studios there'd be bands and they'd just go, they'd all kind of go and disappear for 24 hours in the bar and, you know, that's how ended, how dad ended up on that track really. Right. You know, they're in the bar and, and Ozzy and Tony, you know, collared him in to, to come and play on something. But, um, you know, to hear the stories and, and stuff is kind of like hearing about a different person because you know, my dad hasn't drunk for 35 odd years or wow. or maybe longer and um you know and he can't remember a lot of stuff you know he tells me some of the stories my dad tells me stories when he was on tour and he, he kind of can't remember you know whole legs of tours which right. <laughs> seems, <laughs> seems so so out of character nowadays but you know back then it was kind of part and parcel of being a being a, in a rock band but um, but yeah, Ozzy's always—he's he, always got on well with my dad. My dad's always, you know, got on well with him. It's kind of a nice, you know, sort of very—it's um, quite a comforting feeling when you kind of you, you're with a band and there's, there's a, you know, they've got a, a history with your parents. It's, it's like um, I don't know, it's like chatting to chatting to somebody that knew your parents yeah. thirty years ago. That's awesome. That's awesome. Of course, I, I got to ask, I, I know I might not get an answer, but I got to ask, are there any uh, plans for, for new Aussie music? Well, not that I've heard. I mean, I don't, as I say, I find out tour dates online, right. so I'd be, I'd be the last <laughs> to know. I'd be the last to know if uh, if uh, if there was any new stuff coming out. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Any, anything, anything is possible, you know, in, in, this, uh, uh, in, this, in this business. So, uh, yeah, who, who knows? Do you guys ever like jam on on new riffs or anything on, on yeah, soundcheck I mean, and stuff? Yeah, not so much at soundcheck because the soundcheck's mainly taken up doing the the kind of just the show stuff, making sure everything's up and running for the show. It's it's not really everything's run on quite a, a tight schedule. 
so there's not really a lot of time i mean i i try and find a piano in a hotel when i'm here and and um and uh yeah hopefully if there's nothing going on in one of the, the rooms at the hotel i can kind of sneak in for a few hours and do some writing and stuff so i kind of try and keep busy in that respect but as as a band no we don't we don't sort of you know get to a rehearsal room and 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 jam stuff as as such now but right. the sound check kind of leads into a little bit of a an extended version of something normally yeah very cool adam it's always a pleasure talking with you and thank you for spending some time with us here on talking metal it's been great talking to you mark i mean you know if, if anyone's in the uk come and see us with uh, wilson wakeman and then obviously aussie um on tour through february and, and march into uh, australia and stuff and um and yeah, just you know, come along, and uh, if you see me in a bar, and uh, come and say hello, and, and I'll uh, I'll talk uh, I'll talk the uh, the ears off you for about two hours, which is what I tend to do. We were following you on on Twitter the other night when you were in the in the city in New York City. I think you were out uh, drinking some tequila or something, and it was definitely a colorful uh, Twitter exchange that got going yeah, on. You know, I de- I decided after that that I should really turn Twitter off once okay. I've once I've had two drinks. Now I've got friends who who say, you know, don't buy me more than five, not me personally, but they would say, don't buy them more than five drinks. After five drinks, it goes south. Um, and I think that's kind of what happens with Twitter. It's like after too many drinks, and it was, I think there were there were kind of bottomless margaritas at this Mexican or, or that I was, that I was uh, having, and I'd gone out on my own, so I was just kind of, you know, right. a bit bored. So I yeah. uh, opened, up, opened up Twitter and, uh, and yeah, opened up to to uh, many new friends <laughs> great stuff <laughs> alright Adam thank you so much no worries thanks Mark
Osborne with I Want It More. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Support us on Patreon and buy a t-shirt. Just send me 20 bucks on PayPal. Buy a t-shirt. I got all the sizes in stock. I'll mail them right out to you. Uh, They're 20 bucks each. This is Pain and Pleasure, some classic Judas Priest from 1982 to take us out here on Talking Metal. Thanks, Emily. It was a good time, as always.